This is Nick Fletcher, and I am here for our latest installment of Interview with a PD Pod. Today, my guest is going to be Min Coker, and I'm very excited about this. I would actually say that this represents sort of the one-year anniversary for my first podcast with Mike Vitale, but I've had the fortunate opportunity now to speak with two incoming POSNA vice presidents. Uh, Michael will be taking the reins as president of POSNA in a couple of weeks, and Min will be taking it one year from now. Min is a really remarkable person. If you look at his life's work, it is hard to fathom that one person could do it. He grew up in upstate New York as the child of a father who was a thermodynamics engineer and a mother who was a teacher. He played basketball in high school and had the typical injury to his knee, which resulted in becoming interested in sports medicine, which I think has got to be the way that it happens for most people. But he's done a tremendous amount of work with this. He has been in Boston since the beginning of his residency, other than a year with the Stedman Clinic out in Colorado, and has really made a huge stamp, not just on pediatric sports medicine, but in pediatric orthopedics in general. I think that his role within POSNA has allowed over time for sports medicine to become such a strong part of the membership, and he has led the ACL Pediatric Study Group, otherwise known as Pluto, and also had manned countless other pediatric sports projects. But interestingly, if you ask my residents, most of whom aren't going to be going into pediatrics about Min Coker, they will tell you about the Coker criteria. And so the fact that a pediatric sports medicine specialist has been able to change the world of pediatric orthopedics in an area that really isn't necessarily related to sports medicine at all is, is pretty remarkable. He has an MPH, and as you'll see during this conversation, I think that not only can he talk the talk, but he can walk the walk when it comes to it. He's used a lot of the things that he learned during his MPH to better his research, which obviously betters our ability to look at the outcomes that he's talking about. He had some incredible mentors up in Boston, such as John Hall and James Kasser. And now he is acting as a mentor for a lot of his junior faculty, fellows, and residents. And I think this is something that he really enjoys quite a bit. Probably most interesting, and one of the questions that I had posed to me before I started this project by one of my partners down in Atlanta who knows men, is how in the world he does all this with a wife and five children. And he's always been incredibly involved in their life and his family's well-being. So I really hope that you enjoy this discussion and talk as much as I did. Min was a terrific person to interview, and to be honest, I didn't know him particularly well beforehand, but I feel that I do now. He's incredibly easy to talk to, and I think at the end, this was a very fun interview. So as always, I'd like to thank Carter Clement, Bob Cho, and the rest of the podcast and media relations team who helps us and supports us, as well as all of the listeners, and of course, please stay safe. So this is Nick Fletcher, and it's the end of April, and I'm having the great opportunity to sit down and talk via the web to Min Coker. We are both in the middle of pandemic mode. Min's up in Boston. I'm down in Atlanta, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. As I mentioned in the lead-in, Min and I have served on a committee together, but as I do a lot of spying and he does a lot of sports and I do none of that, we haven't overlapped a whole lot else, so I'm really looking forward to the opportunity. Min, thank you for agreeing to do this today. Thank you very much for having me, Nick. 
So I wanted to give the listener a little bit of a background. And the beauty of the web nowadays is that I can find a little bit about you with some digging. You know, you grew up in upstate New York. Your folks, I believe, were immigrants and your dad was in thermodynamics. So you certainly come by sort of an engineering orthopedic background, honestly. But give me a little bit of an idea as to sort of how you got into medicine and then in particular, how you ended up in pediatric orthopedics and sports. Yeah, I think I kind of laugh sometimes when I read the residency applications. And I think like many orthopedic surgeons, I got interested in medicine and orthopedics from getting injured in high school as well. So I injured my knee playing basketball in high school, had surgery on my meniscus and was able to get back to playing in college. And I thought that was the most amazing thing spurred my interest in medicine. And then I think when I was in medical school at Duke, I had an intention in sports medicine. And that really was fostered by interacting with John Fagan, who was at Duke at the time. And I learned the physical exam from him and to be able to diagnose something and then fix that thing and then see how the exam changed and how the patient gets back to sports was really fascinating to me. I think my interest in pediatric orthopedics came second, and that was during residency in the Harvard program and my rotation at Boston Children's. I think, you know, the faculty at that time led by John Hall and Jim Kasser, you know, were just amazing. And I love the kids and the adolescents and their families. And moreover, I really love the culture of the department and of the hospital. And I had kind of viewed it during residency as a either or, either you go into sports or you go into peds. And I was really struggling with that. You know, Dr. Kasser, who has become a lifelong mentor, really made me realize I could do both and encouraged me to. And, and so I pursued fellowships in both. Now, you didn't really have a whole lot of role models at that point who you could follow along that path. Obviously, you worked with Dr. McKaylee, and there were a few around the country. Was that a little bit daunting in some ways to sort of tackle a path that hadn't necessarily been created and hadn't been as, I should say, popularized as it is today, where it's, you know, we've got lots and lots of residents coming out seeking to do dual fellowships? Yeah, I think in a way it was daunting because it's not, it wasn't a well-trodden path, but that also made it kind of exciting to do something different and try to innovate. You know, at Boston Children's, um, Dr. McKaylee was and is a great role model. He actually started the sports medicine clinic at Boston Children's in the 1970s. And so, you know, there was a program in place and he encouraged me Uh, to do both and come back. Across the country, there were a handful of people who I got to know who were doing peed sports. Carl Stanitsky, who was at Michigan at the time, became a real friend and ally, Professor Gazzanti in Rome as well. And so there were a handful of people interested in pediatric sports at the time. And I know that you, from sort of your injury and then reading about you, you you had a, a big interest always in the knee in particular. But, you know, you have been as well known, at least in the ped sports world, for the knee as you have for shoulder and hip. And hip in particular was another area that I think was still really in its infancy when you were coming through and, and graduating from your training. How did that really get incorporated into the pediatric program up in Boston? 
Yeah, I think it's a story of sort of, you know, continual innovation and, and how things change, Nick. I think when I was a resident in the early 90s, shoulder arthroscopy was sort of new and innovative and just uh, coming online. You know, people would say, why why would you do something through this shoulder scope when you can do it faster and better open? And so when I went to sports fellowship at Stedman Hawkins in Vail, a big draw was Hawk, who was an expert in shoulder arthroscopy and trying to learn shoulder arthroscopy. On my way there, Jim Kasser, again, you'll hear a lot of threads about advice from Jim Kasser, but Jim said, you know, there's this like new thing happening with hip arthroscopy, and it may be important in peds ortho. We see a lot of hip conditions in children and adolescents that have implications, you know, later on. Why don't you you know, try to see what you can bring back with hip arthroscopy. When I was in Vail, you know, hip arthroscopy, there wasn't a lot. Uh, Mark Philippon actually was in Florida at the time and is a friend, and he was an innovator in hip arthroscopy. Um, Bill Sterrett was doing maybe one hip scope uh, a month in Vail to take out a loose body. We were fortunate in Vail to have a great cadaver lab. You could operate on any body part at any time as fellows down in the cadaver lab. So a couple of the other fellows and I wanted to learn more about it. So we just kind of hacked away on cadavers. And then when I came back on staff in 2000, you know, started to do hip arthroscopy for limited indications, loose bodies, labral tears, but did really realize that there's a lot of application in the adolescent young adult patients, sequelae, you know, from skiffy and labral tears and athletes. We had dancers with loose joints we had loose bodies with Perthes disease. And so that's sort of where that experience came from. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. As somebody, at least in the spine world, who is constantly, you know, bombarded with new techniques, many of which translate over into some of the skills that I already have, but many of which require new ones. You know, I briefly was involved with some hip arthroscopies because I also do a fair amount of young adult hip preservation stuff. And it's a very different technique as somebody who, you know, as a resident didn't do a whole lot of it and did knees and shoulders. You know, how did that learning curve work with you? You know, if I look back on the experience, because I've really been doing it now for 20 years, I think, you know, it was interesting to take something that was sort of a new technique and innovative, had potential, but, you know, had a lot of naysayers as well. Uh, I remember Professor Gons telling me it was a peep show when we were (laughs) on the podium together at one point. So there's certainly, you know, some doubt. And I think doubt's actually a very good and very important thing for us as surgeons and scientists. But to see that potential, I think, to then work with others. So to work with Mark Safran, Mark Philpon, a small group of people interested in the area. I think actually to work with industry. So the proximity of Smith and Nephew to Boston, they're located in Andover and, you know, to work with them on developing a traction table and, and instruments that, you know, you could use or that you needed that weren't just longer knee instruments was very helpful and then to sort of, you know, look critically at your results. And so our, you know, early surgeries were really removal of loose bodies, debridement of labral tears, you know, that expanded to repairing the labrum to then understanding the underlying structural issues, such as CAM and pincer femoral acetabular impingement, being able to address those with osteochondroplasty, 
you know, and now to other things like gluteus medius repair, ligamentum teres repair, labral reconstruction. It's been a real interesting evolution. I think with that, though, comes sort of the need to look at new innovation critically, like what are the outcomes, what are the complications, you know, and what are the limitations? I think fortunately at a place like ours or yours where, and in pediatric orthopedics, where I think there's actually a better understanding of the hip mechanically and anatomically um, to work with a hip uh, unit like Dr. Millis and, and Dr. Kim and Dr. Novace at our place where we can review cases and say, you know, this is too much for the scope, too much deformity, or this does have a labral tear, but there's really substantial dysplasia and this this hip needs a PAO. I think that's been a real benefit as well. Yeah, I agree. I know that you know Cliff Willimon pretty well, as you guys are both fail trained, and he and I get to communicate and, and talk about things along that lines when we're talking about hip preservation. I think that's that's invaluable. We're going to get to research a little bit later on, but I wanted to go back to a point that you were just sort of touching on. You've obviously got a, you have an MPH and you're very much into sort of outcomes, but a lot of the things that you're talking about are, you know, really coming down the track pretty quickly. How do you balance maintaining sort of the quality and integrity of the practice that you're doing with the novelty and and new techniques? Because I'm sure that if you, again, use HIP as a model, 90% plus of the things that you're doing today weren't there when you were first learning those. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's literally across the board. I think if, you know, now 20 years into practice, I think there are very, very few things that I'm doing exactly the same way that we did when I was a resident. And so I think that's one of the really exciting things about orthopedic surgery and about pediatric orthopedics and sports medicine is that we are in a field that is innovating and advancing, and that makes it exciting. It makes it interesting and fun. It makes us at the cutting edge. You know, now we're at this cutting edge of biologic innovations and regeneration, regenerative techniques as well. And so, you know, we just ran the list in hip. You could look at, you know, anything, say, for example, meniscus, you know, meniscus has evolved from meniscectomy to meniscus repair with inside-out sutures, then bulky all-inside devices, now lower-profile devices, you know, meniscus transplant, now scaffolds, maybe regenerative techniques. So it's constantly evolving, which I think is very exciting, but it's also a real threat. I think, you know, we, it's incumbent on us and it's our obligation to be skeptical about new innovation. I think we need scientific data, we need animal models, we need comparative clinical studies, we need safety efficacy, we need registries to look at new innovation. And many are going to be very successful and very helpful to our patients, but some are not. And so I think how we study this scientifically is is more important, you know, now than ever. Yeah, I think that's really critical. I want to use that a little bit. I want to come back to some of those points you made in a minute, but I want to use that as a transition to how you counsel your fellows in particular as they come out. Because a lot of the fellows in sports, I'm sure more than basically any other area in orthopedics, are up against pretty stiff clinical competition when they get into practice. And there's they're not going to, most of the time, walk into a 
setting like you have up there, or even probably like we have down here, although, you know, we're sort of a much smaller version. And so they're going to be looked to for being the new innovator. And how do you counsel them against sort of going too overboard and being known as, you know, the guy or the gal who brought in this new technology when it may not be completely proven yet, or even really on the path to being proved yet? Yeah, that's a really good question, you know, and I think that that is really that balance between, you know, being innovative and adopting new techniques versus, you know, being sort of behind the times. And I think that if we think of that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point curve, you know, to be a, there are very few people that are truly, you know, unique innovators. There are the early adopters, and I think it is good to be an early adopter or a late adopter, when you see something that, you know, just makes sense to you, it makes sense that there's a need to this and what we're currently doing could be improved. The thing that you're looking at makes sense mechanically, biologically. There are data from animal models and early clinical studies. I think in that situation, you know, it is good to adopt. You don't want to be at the end of that innovation curve, which is called a laggard, and being the person that's still doing an outdated technique. But you don't want to, I think, jump on the newest kind of shiniest thing just because it's out there. And I think to that extent, I think you need to be careful about, you know, sort of saying, okay, this leader, you know, from this place is using this thing, therefore I'm going to use it, or being swayed by industry. You know, the rep that I know from this company is telling me that this is better and this is why. I just went through, we have eight surgeons at Boston Children's who do ACL reconstruction. We're looking at trying to standardize some of our implants. And, you know, we have eight surgeons that are doing things quite differently with different implants. And when we look at it, there's not a lot of data to show one fixation device is better than another fixation device. The costs vary um, widely. And we have people changing, you know, what they do every six months or every 12 months of fixation device they use. I tend to use things. I mean, I use the same fixation device on the femur and ACL reconstruction that I used 15 years ago. And that's because I haven't had a problem with it. And I think it, it works well. I think if you do use something for a longer period of time, I think you get better with it. You get a sense of what your outcomes are with it and whether there's a problem with that device that something new can address. So I would, I would encourage people to try to find that sort of sweet spot between adopting new technology, but just not sort of, you know, going for the shiniest, newest thing in the room. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, as a, again, as a guy who does a lot of spine, we are certainly fault for that as well. What do you think just sort of along those lines has been the, area that you've changed your paradigm of treatment the most since you started? You know, where do you think there was something that we thought really was working well? And then over time, you've come to realize that, oh, wow, we really didn't have it right. Yeah. You know, when I think of that, I think over time, there are actually things where I feel like with more experience, I've actually gotten more aggressive, you know, say, for example, some OCD lesions in the knee. I think when we published a paper in the early 2000s about, you know, waiting six months with non-operative treatment and if it doesn't heal, proceeding with surgery. And that was 
felt to be aggressive because the normal time had been 12 months. And then now we're pushing that to three months. And now if I see a lesion with intact cartilage that you might think you'd try non-operative treatment with, I think if it's a large lesion, if it's well demarcated, if there's cysts underneath it, if it's in a bad area like the lateral femoral condyle, I think I'm actually more prone to say we should go to surgery and drill and fix it because I've seen over time, you know, lesions that these lesions often don't heal. They then become unstable, harder to fix, and worse outcomes. So there are conditions like that. I think there are also conditions where with more experience, you've gotten less aggressive. You know, one example there would be discoid meniscus. So I think if a patient has a popping knee but isn't really painful or limited does it, and they do have full motion, I'm more prone to observe those patients now than to want to go in and do a saucerization or repair because I think over time you've seen you know, menisci that, that have been saucerized that then tear again and eventually they lose all their meniscus and now you're faced with meniscus transplantation in a young patient. So there are these cases that go bad. So I think over time, you know, things have changed, sometimes in a more aggressive manner, sometimes in a less aggressive manner. It brings up a really interesting point too, because I think we're all a little bit guilty of the fact that with long-term outcomes historically being relatively short and the fact that most kids are so resilient and rebound so quickly, we tend to err towards conservative management. But I think more and more, you know, I'm going to use the world of spine. Sometimes you look at a curve and you're looking for a number and you say, well, I could stop my fusion distally at L2 now, but, you know, I need to wait for that number. And then when it gets to that number, you're looking at L3 or L4, which probably has worse long-term outcome. And I think that the, the OCD example is classic because you're right. You know, we would say, well, kids do well and a lot of them can heal, but if, but that's sort of a cartilage at risk. And if you wait and you go from a unstable intact cartilage to unstable non-intact cartilage, then you've probably caused more difficulty down the road and if you'd been a little bit more aggressive ahead of time. So I think that at least when I look at my practice, there are certain areas that I've gotten a lot more aggressive with, but also to your point, gotten a lot less aggressive in other areas. Absolutely. So I'm curious then with the way that modern sort of techniques are evolving, do you have sort of a view 10 years down the road, maybe what pediatric sports is going to look like? I know the concept of biologics are, have really sort of revolutionized your treatment. How does that fit in with the pediatric population in particular? And, and do you see, you know, any really major trends coming down the road? I think the biologics and regenerative techniques is is really sort of the error that we're on the cusp of. I think, you know, if we look at like ACL reconstruction, I mean, we've really been doing fairly similar. I mean, the graphs may change and the fixation devices may change, but we've been doing pretty, you know, similar surgery for the last 20 years. And we have good results in terms of getting people back to sports, but the long-term results in terms of arthritis and even re-injury, you know, are not great. And so to me, I think there's a lot of potential here. I think, you know, thinking and looking at repairing the ACL with biologic enhancement, a technique that my colleague Martha Murray has really pioneered with this bear technique, I think that's, you know, very, very promising. I think looking at ways to focus on repairing the meniscus instead of taking out the meniscus and more 
biological ways of repairing meniscus or articular cartilage. I think that is very exciting and very promising. But I think with that, you know, it circles back to our conversation about the need for scientific rigor. I think it's, to me, it's really disheartening to see advertisements for stem cell injections and all these claims that are going on without any scientific data and whether there actually are stem cells in those injections and what the longer term outcomes are. So I think this is an exciting area, but more than ever, we really need our scientific rigor. I think specific to PED sports, I think the biological treatments have, you know, even more potential. I think, you know, we know in PEDS fractures and other conditions, kids can heal things that adults, you know, don't heal or need surgery to heal and they can remodel things. I think we're just with our patients, they are so much more biologically active and so much better able to heal and repair than older adults. And so I think this biological and regenerative revolution really has a lot of um, specific application to our pediatric and adolescent patients. Yeah, I agree. I think we deal with pretty nice protoplasm overall, and and the regenerative capacity is just so much greater. I want to sort of follow that lead and talk a little bit more about research. I mentioned earlier that you do have an MPH, and I want to ask you about that in a second. But, you know, the you guys in general as a department, but you in particular, have created really a, a unique research empire, if you will, up in Boston. And I'm sure that the residents on the phone who aren't going to be going into pediatric sports medicine are going to know your name much more for your work in an area that I'm sure you still take your share of call, but that you don't deal with nearly as much, which is obviously in hip infection. And I'm curious if you can sort of speak towards the process of developing the research program that you have, and then maybe touch on recommendations for others as they're trying to sort of get their career off the ground in the academic areas? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it was a a real interest in in research during residency that drove me to get my MPH. And then when I came back on staff in in the 2000s, Jim Kasser asked me to establish and formalize a clinical research group to, you know, assist and facilitate clinical research in the department. So we started then the Clinical Effectiveness Research Center, what we call the CERC. And that's really evolved to, you know, over 30 staff now with research assistants, but also epidemiologists, statisticians, databases, paper and virtual outcome collection, really to assist and facilitate higher level clinical research studies. So prospective studies, registries, multi-center studies. I, I think there's still a important role for retrospective case series for certain questions. And, and we do a lot of those as well. But the goal of the CERC is really to assist in prospective studies and increasing our level of evidence. And so, you know, with the Clinical Research Center, it really is applied ClinEpi designed to facilitate outcome studies and, and clinical comparative effectiveness studies. It's expanded to look at issues in terms of quality and safety as well. It's been funded, I think, through research grants, but also philanthropy and also a commitment from the department and the leadership of Peter Waters. And so I think it's been a, a great you know, group for us in terms of being able to be productive and to do higher level studies. 
Can you talk a little bit more about the hierarchy of the circ? I've learned about it previously, but certainly don't have a complete in-depth understanding, but how you vet questions, what goes into the query and the submission of a request for funding internally, because I think it, it's really remarkable how, how good a job you guys do at, at focusing on questions that need to be answered and that can be answered in a prospective manner. Yeah, I think it allows for some flexibility, you know, depending on what the study is. And so if it is a retrospective case series, you know, we have the ability through electronic records to do searches, get patient data lists, and that can be done with the research assistants in the CERC. That really helps, I think, free up, you know, the PIs, faculty, but also the residents, fellows working on a project from doing a lot of that scut work, IRB forms and other things can be done. If it's a bigger study, like a prospective study, then we're setting up databases and data forms. You know, we're working on bigger issues like IRBs at multiple centers and, and collaborative agreements, research study agreements. Statisticians, you know, who are involved at the beginning of the study, which is really useful in terms of, you know, power and sample size, but also the quality of the data and what analyses are going to be done. We do have internal funding for smaller projects. Obviously, larger projects are going to require external funding. I think we've been fortunate to be able to get some external grants to support large studies, and and we've really been fortunate to work with the hospital trust with donors to develop philanthropic funds to support research studies as well. So it's a, a little bit of the kitchen sink in terms of the skill set of the CERC and also the funding of the CERC. So how do you counsel your fellows or your residents who want to go out and, you know, start down the process of replicating some of the success that you guys have had and that they've had the opportunity to work with you within? Yeah, I think it's really a matter of sort of, you know, being realistic in terms of the time and resources that you have available. And so when we have a you know, a fellow who's coming in for a year, a resident who's rotating in, you know, they're going to be busy with other things, with the clinical responsibilities, and they're going to be around, you know, the fellows are going to be around for a year. And so starting a prospective multi-center study is not really going to be fruitful for that person. I think taking a retrospective case series, you know, that has a control group or a comparison group looking at something in terms of sensitivity, specificity of a diagnostic test. Those are going to be studies that are, are much more applicable. I think for a, you know someone young in their career who wants to develop an area in research, I think the key, I would say, is really focus. Focus on an area. You can you know go deep. So sort of take an area and then try to go deep into that area. Look at the epidemiology, maybe do a clinical review or systematic review, and then break that area down into what are the five questions in that area and how can you design studies. Start with some retrospective comparative studies, develop a prospective study. If it's an unusual condition, try to develop a study group that's multi-center. But I think it's sort of taking, you know, one specific area and trying to become you know, sort of the expert in that area instead of doing a little bit of research kind of in all the different areas of that pediatric orthopedic subspecialty. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I trained at Vanderbilt for residency and worked with Kurt Spindler and Jed Kuhn, who I'm sure you 
know pretty well. And Jed told me once that if you're interested in sort of building research part of your career, you can either do it the way Kurt did, where he created the Moon Study Group and studied something that everybody else was doing at a higher level, if you will. Or you can do what Jed did when he started out and he trained with Hawkins. Hawk had him work on uh, SC joint, AC joint, and snapping scapula. And at the time, there was no literature on any of those. And so he was able to find things that other people hadn't really delved into and, and create his. But I trained under both of those people and I learned a lot from each of them. So I think that your points are really well taken there. Yeah, I mean, Kurt and Jed are, you know, good friends, great researchers, great scientific thinkers, you know, and I think that advice is really spot on, Nick. I do want to bridge from Moon into Pluto, though, because you guys have done something that, you know, wasn't previously done a whole lot within the PED sports world, which is to initiate a large, well-done, multi-center research group to look at something, in this case, PEDS ACL. And I'm curious what you've learned out of that and what some of the challenges have really been. Yeah, I mean, I think Pluto's has been, you know, a labor of love and it's been a long-term sort of goal. I think really, if I look at it, it's something we've been talking about over the last 15 years. And it really goes back to our last discussion about, you know, taking an area of interest, in this case, the pediatric ACL, and then really sort of attacking it from multiple angles. So I think my early work here was really, you know, in some clinical reviews it was on, you know, case series of transficeal reconstructions, ficeal sparing reconstruction outcomes with IT band. It was case series on growth disturbances. It was some surveys on increasing prevalence of the injury, on variations in treatment. So that was all sort of, you know, background work to show that this is a problem that's increasing. There's lots of controversy in terms of what the best treatments are. The stakes are high in terms of you know long-term arthritis return to play, but also growth disturbance. And then specifically to get Pluto going, we needed to develop and validate outcome instruments specific to pediatric and adolescent athletes. So we worked on the IKDC modifying that and validating the PDIKDC and some activity scales. And then you know it was getting a group of investigators who are passionate about this area together. We have 10 centers. We then had to work on sort of standardizing, you know, how we were going to look at growth, how we were going to look at re-injury outcomes, how we define the different surgical techniques. And then we started to enroll three and a half years ago, and we actually just stopped enrollment. We're at over 750 patients. And so now as we've stopped enrollment, we're really focusing on follow-up data, two-year, one-year and two-year follow-up data. I think we've already started with some systematic reviews. We're now moving on to some reports on baseline data, and then we'll move on to outcome data. So for me, it's been you know very, very satisfying. It's great to work with a group of friends who are smart and passionate about this area at other centers, but it's also been a lot of work. I mean, we're on a monthly call. There's been a lot of research infrastructure at our place, but also at each of the 10 institutions to do this study. And it's required a lot of funding that's been cobbled together from grants and from philanthropic funding. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And, and again, I mean, not necessarily in my world, but I worked with Kurt a lot during sort of the moon ramp up. And it was an unbelievable amount of work. So I can only imagine. I'm curious, you've obviously 
you know, done a tremendous amount with Pluto, but you've also got some pretty big landmark, you know, discoveries or projects that have really, I think, changed the way pediatric orthopedics is practiced. And those usually take a team, big team. And I'm curious which of those you think you're most proud of in terms of, you know, the work that went in and the results that came out and how they've impacted care. Yeah, that's also a really interesting question. I think, you know, when I think about that, it, to me, it's not really a specific paper or topic. You know, take, for example, the septic hip transient synovitis Coker criteria. It, to me, it was really more about the application of epidemiological and biostatistical methods. That's, to me, what I'm probably most proud of and was most exciting for me. So the septic hip paper was really utilizing multivariate modeling to develop a clinical prediction rule, which was very exciting to me. And, you know, there are other papers, say we did a skiffy to pin or not to pin the contralateral hip. To me, what was exciting about that was using expected value decision analysis. We did a randomized clinical trial, medial and lateral versus lateral pinning for supracondylar humerus fractures. To me, what was most exciting about that was, you know, doing the surgical randomized clinical trials and the unique challenges associated with that. I think the PDIKDC and activity scales, I think, are valuable. But again, to me, the most exciting part of that was developing an outcome instrument. So as I go through different things that we've done, I think that the paper and the, the study itself have been, you know, important and some have changed practice or have helped practice. But to me, the most exciting part of a lot of that work is really actually the methodology. So using methodology that wasn't commonly used in orthopedics to kind of come to a, an answer. So I guess that brings me to, and I wanted to lead in toward to sort of mentorship, but I guess one of the questions that I have along that is, You've done a tremendous amount of work with your MPH. It's interesting. The first guest a year ago was your predecessor in the presidential line, Mike Vitale, who also has an MPH, uh, but I think has used it a little bit differently than yours, although a lot of the common themes that you just brought up were there. But the questions come up to me from some of our trainees as to, you know, who do I think would benefit from an advanced degree? And I don't have an advanced degree beyond the MD. Who do you think benefits most from an MPH? And when people ask you, you know, do you think that there's a role for me getting one? How do you answer? I think there really needs to be a reason and a passion. I, I don't think I wouldn't get a degree just to get a degree or get a degree to think that a degree will help your career. There has to be an underlying reason and an underlying passion. I mean, for me, getting the MPH, the underlying reason was really just seeing such variation in orthopedic surgery during residency and, um, you know, very little data to support lots of expert opinion. And so the passion was really in, you know, learning clinical research techniques to try to look at our treatments and to establish, you know, comparative effectiveness. And I would give that same advice and I do to folks that I talk with and mentees. I think, again, you need a reason, you need a passion and if you have that, I think it's really very valuable. I think it can differentiate you, and it also gives you a skill set that is unique that you can use. So if I look at you know folks who've gone on to pursue an MBA, they're often 
folks who have a real interest in sort of value, healthcare value, which is really important in, in today's age or healthcare economics, are going to take a leadership role that involves a lot of business in medicine. And, and I think that degree is very valuable. I think an MPH for those that are interested in research, but there's also MPHs in international health and safety value. All these areas can be give you a skill set that's very useful. And now, you know, some of our faculty and some of our mentees have a real passion for education and teaching. And I think that's a real formalized area of learning as well. And so we've had faculty who pursued an education degree, you know, learning adult learning models and methods and applying that to medical students, residencies and fellows. And and I think, uh, I think it's been really beneficial for those folks, again, who have the reason and have the passion. Yeah, I'm uh, very close friends with Ben Shore, who I know has enjoyed having that opportunity. I want to talk about mentoring a little bit. You mentioned some of your, you know, fabulous mentors, you know, early on, and now you are in the role where you're mentoring a lot of people. And I'm curious sort of what your tact is, how you go about doing that, how you build some of your junior partners' practices now that you've got, you know, eight in your group and you're one of the senior folks. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's a amazing opportunity, I think, both to be mentored. And so I really value, you know, my mentors. And then I think to be a mentor is a real gift and it's a real responsibility. And I've really enjoyed it. I've learned that I think it doesn't really happen. It can happen in part through sort of structured, you know, meetings or biannual meetings. But a lot of mentorship happens, you know, in the halls, in the office, in the operating room, seeing people at conferences, you know, having a drink or golfing with someone. So I think it's formal, but informal. I've also really learned that it's professional, but a lot of it, you know, is also personal. It's sort of when it comes down to it, a lot of the big questions people have are sort of professional, but they're also personal. How do I manage my time? How do I you know, balance family with my career and professional demands. And so I think it's really mentorship on sort of multiple levels. And I think it's really a two-way street. I think you learn a lot from mentees. You learn a lot about your values and, and you have to be open and talk about things that have worked for you, but things that have not worked for you. You also need to recognize that everyone's different and everyone comes at it from a different perspective and a different set of goals and values. When I talk to mentees, I really try to have them focus on developing an area where they can be impactful and then approaching that area clinically and then with their research and also their education and their, their training. It involves then advocating for those people, advocating to, to get them involved in committees if they're interested in programming, getting on programs applying for grants. And it really has sort of applied across the board. I think now, you know, I've seen a number of patients who are high school kids injured or college kids who now have an interest in medicine. So, you know, mentorship for them, maybe just talking to them about what a career in medicine is like or having them shadow in clinic, you know, medical students or MPH students, residents. And then probably the most mentoring is happening with our fellows. I think they our sports medicine fellows are working you know, very closely with us for a year, and they're 
have lots of questions about setting up their practice and, you know, looking at jobs, looking at different jobs and then setting up their practice, what areas they want to focus on and how to balance their life. And so to me, it's been a real blessing, but it's a job, you know, you have to take seriously and take some effort. Yeah. And I'm curious about your group in particular, because I think you struck a really important point there, which is sort of the balance and picking certain areas that you want to focus on. But you've got a group who are all pretty high powered folks and they've got a lot of energy and they've got a lot of interests. Have you had to, or I guess the, the better question is, how do you rein in some of that activity and that desire to become involved in absolutely everything and keep them on the right track to develop into a, you know, somebody who gets to be well known for one or a couple of things rather than somebody who has a harder time developing a career because they focused on absolutely everything. Yeah, I think it's sort of different strokes for different folks. And I think one thing, you know, even in a big department like ours, and it's really applies to the overall field of pediatric orthopedics. We are, you know, really blessed to be in this field that is so collaborative and has such a great culture. And so I have been amazed at how easy it is to approach anyone in my department and get advice from Emmons on raising little kids and talk to Ben Shore, who, you know, who's doing different things about things that have worked for me and haven't worked for me. And then even across Pozna, just meeting people and talking to people, it's a really unique field, unique organization. And so I think that access is something that we have a lot of opportunity for. I think there are people that naturally really want to develop one area and become known for it. And and I think those are the people that should try to focus on a certain area and go deep and establish themselves clinically and research and in terms of talks in that area. And I think there are others that, you know, go into pediatric orthopedics specifically because you can do a little bit of everything. And and I think that is a, a real gift of pediatric orthopedics as well. And they like doing a little research in fracture or infection and then maybe a a knee thing or spine thing or club foot thing. And so I think that generalist who loves pediatric orthopedics because they can do a little of everything and they can also do a little research in different areas, I think should be encouraged to do that as well. Yeah, those are all all really good points. I want to use that to bridge into a bit with POSNA and you mentioned POSNA. I'm curious how you got so involved with POSNA. And then also, again, as a spine guy, we've got another society in the SRS that is, you know, is big and has a has obviously a large academic mission as well. And you guys have, you know, the AOSSM and other sports societies. How did you get involved with POSNA and how do you balance your time between those different societies and your roles in them? Yeah, I think POSNA is just such an amazing organization. And I think one of the benefits of POSNA is that you can get involved and you can get involved at an early stage in your career. I think other organizations, it's harder to get involved and it's more kind of buddy-buddy. But POSNA, I think it, it is an easy organization to get involved with. I think my personally, it started with committee work. And so it was on um, be getting on committees where I had a real interest, the research committee, evidence-based medicine committee. And then I think once you're on committees, you know, 
you need to work hard. You need to be on time, show up to meetings, conference calls, don't get spread too thin. And then I think, you know, things kind of proceed from there. For me, it was being a junior board member and then coming back to the board as a research council chair and now in the presidential line. But I think a good place to start, you know, is committees. I think the committee appointment process, the CAP, is a good way. I think almost everyone who wants to be on a committee can be on a committee. I think reach out to your mentors or or partners in your department. And again, one of the nice things about POSNA is you can pick up the phone or you can walk up and talk to almost anyone. It's the culture of POSNA is very unique. I think the second part of your question, Nick, was about balancing different organizations. And I think for those that are involved in subspecialization within pediatric orthopedics, it's important to stay involved with the subspecialty board. So, you know, if you're upper extremity hand to be involved with POSNA, but also the hand society for sports to be involved with POSNA, but also AOSSM or ANA. And I have served on the AOSSM board and on the AAOS board as well. And those are are great organizations as well. And you, you learn a lot, you know, they're both very different. And I think for me, working with POSNA has been a real gift. I think that the culture that's around POSNA and the mission, the way people work together and are collaborative is just a, a very unique organization that you don't see often with other organizations. Yeah, I agree. That's pretty remarkable. It's remarkable that they would let uh, somebody like me just come up with this idea and, and run with it. How do you balance your very, very busy clinical and research practices with your roles in POSNA? And not just now, uh, we'll get into your presidential component in a minute, but you know, as you were coming up, and I think you touched briefly on sort of not getting overextended. How do you do that? Yeah, I, you know, to me, that's been a real kind of personal obsession, really, this goal of trying to be balanced. And I think that I've come to the realization that it's really an illusion. And so when you see someone who looks like they're in balance, if you look at the force plate underneath that person, there's lots of activity and movements and correction going on. So really, the goal, I don't think, is to stay in balance. The goal is to not be too far out of balance. And I think it's an understanding of a few things. One is how many balls you can keep in the air. And so for me, you know, the big balls are clinical care, research, now administrative role with the Division of Sports Medicine in the hospital, and then this leadership role in POSNA and other organizations. And of course, the biggest and most important ball that anyone will have is sort of their family and and their relationship with their spouse. And so trying to keep those in the air and not dropping them is important. I think sometimes you will drop a ball and and it feels bad, but balls often bounce and you, you get a second chance. I think thinking about your career in phases is really important. I think early in your career, you really should be saying yes to a lot of things and and trying to get involved and not saying no too often. I think once you're established, then you can start to think about, you know, where are the areas that you're going to make the biggest impact? And then I think as you get further on in your career, you actually have to start saying no to a lot of things. It's an opportunity actually to say, you know, encourage your junior partners to do things and for people to ask other people to do things. So I think I tend to think of it as career phases as well. And then 
I think one of the most useful things in terms of trying to stay in balance, we talked about mentorship before, and I think we talked about it from sort of a top-down point of view, you know, like you getting mentored by your senior mentors and now you becoming a mentor for, you know, more junior folks. But I think the peer mentoring is really important as well. If you can find a group of friends, you know, who are not from your same department, but who are in a similar career phase of life, and that becomes your almost support group, like, you know, run ideas by your dealing with similar things. Should I say no to this? Should I say yes to this? They tell you when you look out of balance. I think a group like that, you know, personally for me has been incredibly beneficial. Yeah. And both Mike and Jack spoke of your little group. It's what you, Ken, Mike and Jack. And Dave Skaggs. Yes. Oh, Dave Skaggs. Yeah. And you guys have like a, Mike said you have a, a text pretty much every day that goes along, it goes on. So that's pretty cool. So on sort of a weekly basis right now, how are you balancing a much larger role within POSNA and your clinical duties? Yeah, I think the POSNA responsibilities kind of, there's some steady state ones, and then there are some, you know, increased and decreased things depending on the ebb and flow of what's been happening. You know, we have a POSNA presidential line call every other week that's really important with the presidential line and with Terry Steck, our administrator, executive director. And that's where a lot of, you know, has an agenda. A lot of things come up and quick decisions need to be made. The POSNA board meetings are four times a year, and that's the bigger group and a set agenda and, and bigger decisions get made. And then as things, you know, come up, you know, there's more and more communication, you know, look over this, let's have a call, text emails going around. I think this year in particular, there's been a lot of urgent issues that have required a lot of attention by POSNA. So sort of moving out on our own from the academy building to our own building, having an independent staff from being managed by the academy has taken a lot of work. I think the annual meeting and the COVID crisis, moving that to a virtual annual meeting, and then dealing with some of the finances with this recession that's hit. And these have been sort of bigger issues that have required kind of more attention. But again, I think, you know, to, to be able to do that in a well-functioning group that's collaborative, has a shared values and missions, and has great POSNA staff and executive director, it, it's been a real it's been work, but it's been real fun and a, a real joy to do. So I'm curious, your department is a little bit unique in that it's obviously large and has a storied history, but also it has a number of previous presidents, including your chair in it. And how do you find that the department sort of manages, if you will, having somebody in the presidential line? Because it adds a lot of time and work and on some level takes away from the clinical productivity of the department on you know, a number of levels because you can't focus quite as much on research, quite as much on clinical care. How is that done successfully? I, I know that you know when Peter was in the line, you probably observed how that occurred with him, and now you're going through it as well. Yeah, I think it's been you know very positive. I think the department as a whole is very committed to POSNA and supports involvement with POSNA on all levels. And so that includes the presidential line, but we also have you know, Tim Resco as a council chair and Sam Spencer as a board of director member, and then getting other people, particularly junior faculty involved in different committees. So that's a 
real priority for our department. I think, you know, being in a department where John Hall and then Jim Kasser and then Peter Waters have been presidents in the POSNA line, you know, is our great shoes to fill. But it's also a great source of advice. You know, I think talking to Jim or Peter about issues that come up and, and getting their take on it is very important. But they also, you know, realize that this is your time and these are your decisions and help you figure out, you know, your own approach to things. And so it's been very, very positive in our department. That's great. Yeah, it's it's got to be terrific to have those kind of mentors all around you. We've only got a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to finish up with something that I know is incredibly important to you. And it's interesting, I was talking with Cliff about, you know, sort of thoughts, at least from a sports side of thing, as to what to talk to you about. And we touched on one of them, which was the that seemingly apparent work-life balance, but you in particular have a, have a pretty big family. You've got five kids, and I'm curious how you continue to maintain that important ball up in the air and try not to drop it with your family as you go through all of this. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that you think you can sort of impart on others? I think it's a matter of, you know, all the time realizing what your number one priority is. And I think it's it's great to be busy clinically and, and to do research and have an administrative role and, and be involved in POSNA. But, you know, I think for me, the number one priority has always been uh, family and my relationship with my wife, Michelle. And so just keeping that front and center is important. I think, you know, we have a lot going on with five kids and we have a farm with some horses and sheep. So there's always lots of stuff to do. I think for me, it's getting home in the evening. So we have a family dinner together. We now have our two college kids back from college because of this COVID crisis. And so in a way, it's actually great to have everyone back for family dinner and, and to talk about, you know, what's going on. I think the, to me, it's always been about quality time, but really also quantity time. And so just being around and being involved in their life and their sports and coaching and, you know, driving to ski races in New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, you get a lot of time to talk and, and you learn a lot. And I think, you know, getting feedback from your kids is important. I think certainly getting feedback from your spouse is important, realizing when you've overcommitted or, or when you're out of balance and working to correct that you know, is really important. And I also think just sort of being a little bit easier on yourself, realizing that the careers that we've chosen, the field that we've chosen is a lot of work and a lot of commitment. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to do everything, you know, well and perfectly. And and we may not be able to do that. But if we, you know, really try our best, if we kind of make corrections when we're out of balance, you know, hopefully we're doing a, a good job in most areas. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are all all really good points. Well, men, we've been talking for an hour and I try to keep it around that, but this has been a tremendous learning experience for me and, and a lot of fun. And I, I couldn't appreciate you more for taking your time to do this and offer these great insights. Thanks, Nick. I really enjoyed talking with you. I, I really enjoyed these podcasts and uh, thanks for all your efforts. Oh, great. 